Sketch number four of Zora Boys at Home and Abroad, or How to Succeed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Kenny. Zora Boys at Home and Abroad, or How to Succeed by William Alexander McKay. Sketch number four. George McKay or the youthful standard-bearer. If so far in these sketches I have said little directly of the religious life of some of Zora's young men, it has certainly not been because of scarcity of good material. But having in pioneer life in Zora dwelt largely upon this aspect of life of the district, I do not wish to repeat myself here, though the task was tempting enough. In this sketch, however, I present a few things concerning the religious life and the triumphant death of a young man of lofty purpose and noble character, who was early called to his reward, but whose memory will long be fragrant in Zora. George Mackay was born on May 27, 1856. He was the son of Mr. and Mrs. Donald Mackay, and was one of a family of eight, seven sons and one daughter. Four of the sons were dedicated to the ministry of the Presbyterian Church. His brothers, Hugh McKay of Broadway, Northwest Territories, and Angus McKay of Lunknow, Ontario, are well-known ministers today. His brother William died in 1881. George, like all Zora boys, received his primary education in the district school. After attending for some time the high school at St. Mary's, he went to Upper Canada College and entered Toronto University in 1874. In the summer of 1875, he taught school and preached a few times. In February 1876, he contracted a heavy cold, which brought on pleurisy, and necessitated his leaving college and seeking rest at home. Thinking that a trip across the ocean might benefit him, his father took him in the month of June to visit friends in Scotland. While there, he gained some strength, but on returning, got overheated in Montreal, drank too freely of cold water, suffered a relapse, and scarcely reached his home when he was stricken with typhoid fever, and after an illness of ten days, passed away on August 25, 1876, in the 21st year of his age. Young in years, he was ripe in grace. And is it not natural for the ripe fruit to fall? Young or old, have they not run long enough who have reached the goal and won the prize? Some of George Mackay's letters and deathbed sayings have been preserved, though never hitherto published. I venture to say they would do no discredit to John Newton or Robert Murray McChain if published alongside their wonderful words. Such clear views of evangelical truth, such depth of Christian experience, and such an all-absorbing spirit of devotion, combined with deep tenderness and humility, are seldom found in one so young. On August 3, 1874, in a letter to his brother Hugh, who had recently entered the Christian ministry, he says, Dear Hugh, I suppose you will be thinking that I ought to be more mindful of you than I have been since I left you in Toronto. But I must say that I am kept so busy that I can scarcely get time to do anything but work, work. I mean physical labor. However, I can assure you that when I come in from work every night, 
perhaps very tired and wearied out after a hard day's toil, I never forget to call you and your work to mind, and to present the desires of my heart to our common Father in heaven, that prosperity may accompany your labors, that you may indeed feel the assistance of his Holy Spirit directing you in all things. Dear Hugh, I often think what a responsible position yours is, and the great account you will have to render at the final day of retribution. Oh, the need of being closely united to the true vine from which you may draw enough to supply all your need. Writing to his mother from Toronto, he makes reference to the recent marriage of his sister as follows. My dear mother, I'm sure you will be feeling a little lonely since Tina left you. And who can blame you, for we can all testify that she has been to you a kind and dutiful daughter. And the fact of her being separated from you, to become more closely connected with another, cannot but leave an aching void which can only be filled by daily intimacy with the friend who has promised that his kindness shall never fail. We need not expect to have earthly friends who shall last us all our lifetime. Those who are our most intimate companions today may tomorrow forsake us. But I hope you will enjoy spiritual life more than ever and seek to devote all the health and strength God may see fit to grant you in his own service and to his own glory. I think you have been a Martha long enough. Turn a new leaf now and become a Mary. You will realize more happiness in old age than you have done hitherto by ascending betimes with the eye of faith, the heights of Pisgah, and viewing the beautiful home, bright and fair, that lies beyond the Jordan. I hope you are all well. Give my regards to the Father and all, and believe me to be your loving son, George. Under date, Knox College, Toronto, January 24th, 1875, he writes to a cousin about whose spiritual interest he felt much concern. He says, Oh, if there is anything that rejoices my heart and gives me moments of true happiness, it is to see one whom I love becoming a lover of the Savior, and thus enjoying the same happiness, partaking of the same fullness of love and grace, and above all, cherishing the same blessed prospect of eternal bliss as myself. I have made trial both of the world and of Christ, and oh, what a contrast! Alas, that I should have filled out fifteen long years to no purpose, satisfying self and Satan, when all my time was due to him who died that I might live. Alas, that I should have so long lived on the husks of the world, when in the Father's house there was plenty to spare. Alas, that I should have lived naked and destitute of raiment, when during all these long years Jesus was offering to me the spotless robe of his own righteousness. Oh, if you have not yet received Christ into your heart, let me entreat you as one who loves your soul to receive him now, and then you will have something for which to live. And when life's battle is ending, and you are about to exchange the mortal for the immortal, you can sing, I'll soon be at home over there, for the end of my journey I see, many dear to my heart over there are waiting and watching for me. His last illness, as already indicated, was short in duration, but it was very rich in Christian experience and testimony. To his father, who was sitting beside his bed, he said, Oh, father, you have been so good to me. You have done so much for me, and I have been so bad to you.
He then addressed his father in heaven and said, I will ask God's forgiveness first. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy servants. After praying to God for some time in this manner, he turned again to his earthly father and confessed his many sins to him. O oh, Father, I have been so stubborn, strong-headed, and self-willed. I have disobeyed you so often. Will you forgive me, Father? The Father assured him he had nothing hard against him in his mind, but if he had done anything ill, he had forgiven him long ago. He then burst forth in expressions of gratitude to God for such a father. In speaking about himself, he expressed deep humility and his utter unworthiness of any of the least of God's mercies. Oh, the love of God, he said. Christ dying for sinners, poor lost sinners. Christ dying for worms. What an ocean of love is seen here. May we all, blessed Savior, be drinking largely out of this ocean which is free to the vilest sinner. Observing his sister standing beside the bed, he said, Oh, sister, do not rest one moment satisfied without a real union with Christ. I do not know but that you knew Jesus long before I did, but do not rest until you are sure of a real union, a lasting union existing between your soul and Christ. Do not rest satisfied with an outward confession of sins, but may the blessed work of the Spirit be carried on to perfection within your soul. Walk in the ways of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, meekness, holiness, and truth, for these are the fruits of the Spirit. At another time, he spoke to his sister Tina alone and said, Remember, dear sister, that in times of prosperity, you need to be very watchful. You are very apt, then, to set your heart on the things of time and sense. You are apt to be allured from the straight and narrow path and to forget your God. You require more grace at such times to keep your heart. Do not let anything here have the room in your hearts that Christ should have. I believe God will be with you and keep you and preserve you. I trust you are united to the Lord Jesus Christ by living faith that he will never leave you nor forsake you. At another time, speaking about growth and grace, he said, I believe decidedly we ought to be making progress in the divine life every day we live. We ought to be getting closer to God in love and likeness every day. He then repeated the verse, Near, my God, to thee. He often mourned over how little he had done for Jesus. On one of these occasions he said, Have we not enlisted as soldiers under thy banner, the blood-red banner of King Emmanuel, and should we not be doing something? Is it possible that there is one idle soldier in the army? There are precious souls perishing around us, and so many millions throughout the world. Should we not try to rescue the perishing? We have even many friends and relatives who are far from Christ. Let us speak to them lovingly, and try to win them by love, that we may give them no offense. On one occasion, he repeated a verse that his cousin John gave him, and seemed to be greatly pleased with it. It was Psalm 43, 5. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance and my God. John gave me that verse, he said. 
He then prayed for him and afterwards for all the family, that God would bless them and make them a blessing to others. He spoke some time about blank, who had infidel views. Oh, he said, he has such good natural qualities. He seems to be so meek, kind, and agreeable. I feel so sorry that he should hold such views. To live without God and die without hope is too awful to think of. I often thought I would write him a letter, but I could never get courage to do so. I hope he may yet be brought in to a knowledge of the truth. May God bless all the family. Seeing his brothers and sisters standing around him weeping, he exclaimed, Do not shed a tear for me. I love you all. You are all so good to me. But I would rather depart and be with Christ, which is far better than to remain with the nearest and dearest friends here. Our light afflictions are but for a moment and work out for us an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. He often prayed for patience to bear his trouble and to be resigned to the will of God. On one occasion he said, I pray not that thou wouldst take me out of this affliction, but that thou wouldst give me grace that I may bear it patiently. Again he said, For my part I would rather go, but for your sakes I would like to stay. He then gave some reasons for wishing to go, enumerating a list of the qualities of this earth, and also a list of the qualities of the home over there, and told his friends to contrast the two. Speaking to his father about faith in God, he said, Would it not be dishonoring to you if I would not believe you? It would be mean and unworthy. So it must be very dishonoring to God not to believe what he says. I do think unbelief is the great sin. At one time, he repeated very emphatically, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of sin for a season. And then, as if addressing David, he said, Well might you say that, David. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the places of sin. On another occasion, he repeated the first verse of the 13th chapter of Zechariah and asked, What did the clause to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem mean? It was explained to him that this indicated provision made in Christ for the king and for the common people, high and low, rich and poor. He was greatly pleased with the explanation and requested that the whole chapter be read to him. To his aunt, who was attending him, and to whom he many times expressed his gratitude for her great kindness, he remarked that she looked so much like his dear mother, who had died two years before, and then added, Auntie, is it not right that we should use every means in our power to induce our friends and relatives who are far from Christ to come to him? Oh, Tina, said he to his sister, what an awful thing it will be if even one of our family will be lost in the great day. As the end drew near, the pearly gate seemed to stand ajar, and he had a transporting vision of the golden city. Oh, the glory, he exclaimed, of the heavenly land. It passes our finite comprehension, the great things that God hath prepared for us. I hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor mind conceived. But he continued, his countenance glowing with celestial radiance. 
These things are not unknown to us even here, for God hath revealed them to us by his Holy Spirit. A few are the following lines more descriptive than of George Mackay. Ere since, by faith, I saw the stream, thy flowing wound supply. Redeeming love has been my theme, and shall be till I die. Then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save, when this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. End of section 4